0: If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5. As I've had opportunity on Sunday evenings to, to preach to you all, I've, I've been preaching through the beginning of Isaiah. I've called it Isaiah's Overture because as a, a, a symphony begins, its, its, or prepares to play its, its piece, there is this... This, this introduction called an overture, and often that overture serves as a means for the, the king to have time to make his way to his seat. And, and of course, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah famously enters the temple and sees the king high and lifted up. And so what we have in the first five chapters is an overture as the king prepares to take his seat. And and here this night we we find ourselves in the last movement, if you will, of that overture and Isaiah's song, a song to the vineyard that he sings in chapter 5. And we'll just see the first five verses this evening and then we'll, as I have another opportunity, see the rest of the chapter in time. God's word to us from Isaiah, chapter chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It reads, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, and he cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it waste. And I'll cry. Amen. After five chapters of the prophecy, Isaiah spending all five chapters announcing the the coming judgment upon an unfaithful people and even reminding those that are faithful that there is yet salvation coming as well, he, at the end, lifts up his voice to sing. But the song that he sings, if you noticed, is not his own. It is the song of another, as verse 1 tells us. It is the song of the loved one for his vineyard. Close my Bible. It's going to be hard for me to look at that when I do it without it open. There we go. It's a song for his, his vineyard. It's not Isaiah's vineyard. It's his. It is a song of love, he says. And it is a song of love lost. Love and love lost. Isn't that a, a song that we are familiar with? The contours of it are, are all too constantly on the airwaves. Even in the 14th century of all places, Romeo and Juliet begins a, is, a, is a story of something like that, is it not? Beginning with hope and bright expectation in the new beginnings, but it ends in loss and brokenness and despair. To paraphrase some of our own love songs, that loving feeling is lost. I've I've heard it through the grapevine. Not much longer will this people be mine. We we have numerous songs that sing these kind of words. It is a song of, of union and expected communion. It is a song of those expectations dashed. And it is a song of judgment, but not without hope. It is the song of Israel. And as it is the song of Israel, so it is as well the song of all mankind. And therefore, it is a song for you and me this evening. And I would like to look at it together this evening in in four movements. I think that it's helpful to see it this way. First, love. You see love described. And second, you see love's expectation. And then third, love's loss. And finally, love's vengeance. Love, love's expectation, love's loss, and love's vengeance. So first, let's look at the love that is displayed in this love song. I think it's evident, obviously, in the language itself. Love is there repeatedly. He sings to his beloved. And according to the ESV, he calls the song a love song. And the song focuses on his beloved and the vineyard of that one, that beloved one. Love is in the language of the text itself. And love is... Even more so is displayed for us in the description of the vineyard that is sung about here. It is clear that the beloved loves the vineyard. Well, how do we know that? Well, we see it by the way he acts. What he does displays to us that he loves the vineyard. First, notice he places it in a very good location. He doesn't just willy-nilly choose a spot and start building. No, no, no. It seems that he has is, he is searched out and found a very fertile hill. And, and no, it's fertile. He's probably had to, to, to look at other hills and see other soils and test its soil. And so finally, he decides on this one, a very fertile hill. The soil and sun are perfect for a vine in this spot. The beloved has thought about this work and he chooses the land lovingly, carefully. And then having chosen the land, he prepares it. Verse 2, there are six actions here uh, recorded for us. First, we already have the choosing of the place and now six actions to prepare that place. Look there with me. First, notice what it says. It says, he dug it, meaning he Turned the soil over. He had to plow the land to to do the planting. He prepared the rich dirt to put seeds or seedlings in it. And then it says, he cleared it of stones. E.J. Young, the 20th century Old Testament scholar, shares a story in his commentary on this section about uh, the Arabs and the story that they tell of the creation of the land of Israel or all the world. He says that the Arabs say that when the world was created, they, they, there was these angels that went out with bags of rocks. And as they went out with their bags of rocks to disperse stones throughout the world, the bag ripped and they spilled half of the stones in Palestine. And so they say Palestine is the stoniest place and all the earth. And so to clear a plot of land in Israel of stones is no small task. There are stones everywhere. Yet the beloved does just that. He labors, he sweats, he pulls every stone from the dirt to make it ready for the planting. And next, it says he built a watchtower in the midst of it, presumably with some of those very stones that he might have someone watch out for it to keep it safe and that it might grow unmolested. And then he hewed out a wine vat in it. He's cleared it of stones. He's tilled it. He's built a tower None of these are easy, fit, fit feats at all. And then lastly, he hews a wine vat, And the idea here is that there is bare bedrock somewhere that he chisels out so that there's a bowl for it to catch the grape juice as it pours out when the grapes are trampled and then is captured so that it can later be made into wine. This is backbreaking, hard work. He dug, he cleared, he built, he hewed takes a lot of time to do all of that. It is a labor of love. You see his actions displayed by all of these works that he's done and the time that he spent and the sweat that he's spent over this land. All of it that he might expectantly wait for a harvest or in the language of the text, and he looked, maybe from his watchtower, that it might yield good grapes that it might yield grapes. The beloved shows his love in his actions in and for the vineyard. It is a picture, is it not, of the love of the Lord of hosts for his people. He chooses a land for them. He clears it out and gives to them all that they need in it for life and godliness. He provides for them his law, his word, the priesthood, and all the sacrifices and the ordinances for those sacrifices, and a temple for them to do the work of the priesthood that the people might draw near and commune with God there. And then he further adds, in addition to all these things, judges, kings, prophets, and a land that is said to flow with milk and honey. All that they might yield the harvest of a nation devoted to God. Good grapes, the fruit of lips giving thanks to his name, worshiping him in spirit and in truth, a people for his own possession. That brings us to our second point. You see, love and now love's expectation. Such labor, such, such hard work expects a return. Love expects a response. Of course it does. This is something which we, you and I, who are made in the image of God, know all about, don't we? We know what it is to display love, to pour it out, to open our hearts to someone else, and doing so, expect to be noticed. We expect response. We expect some measure of affection that is poured out back to us, shown to us. We expect In the language of the song, good grapes. It is the same with the beloved here. He expects a harvest. We read about it twice in verses 2 and 4. His his expectation, it comes to us in the third person. It says, he looked. And then it comes even more emphatically in the first person. I looked. The expression describes a hopeful, a patient, an expectant waiting And isn't that a perfect description of God seated in His high place in heaven and waiting on humanity toward Israel and all humanity, patient, expecting, waiting, having labored and done the work, He he waits. He does not immediately cut down fruitless trees. You know the parable of Jesus? There's the tree that's not bearing fruit and and the the man says, let me go and let me dig around it and put fertilizer around it and then wait and see if that will help. And he says, okay, do it. He's a God that gives to the sinner multiple chances to repent. Remember Jesus' answer to Peter when he says, how many times shall I forgive a brother who sins against me? And he graciously says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. He is patient He's long-suffering, Peter writes towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's not a pleasure that the wicked perish. God longs. He waits for a harvest. And the repentance he seeks is first and foremost the turn of the creature towards his Creator, It's the turn of the sinner towards his Redeemer. He seeks men and women to worship him in spirit and truth. He seeks a people to be his people so that he may be their God. There's a reason that the song describes the love as shared between a man and his vineyard. It's a little odd if you think about it, a man and his vineyard. All of our love songs are typically about a man and a woman. I suppose there are some about a man and his car or his boat. But here, a man a man and his vineyard. And I think that's to point out to us, to hint toward us, to us, the nature of the relationship. We are his workmanship, the produce of his labors. We are because he made us. And we are his for that very reason as well. The end which he rightly expects of such labor is the fruit of communion with him. And he pours out his love upon us that we might know him. You can feel that kind of expectation that God has for His people when you hear Christ lament over Jerusalem in the Gospels, saying, How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Longing. But, Jesus continues, Despite such longing, despite the labor of love, the expectation is not meant. I long for it but he says, you would not. Stretched out my hands. I did everything, and you would not. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, which brings us to our third point, love's loss. Wild grapes. Not sweet, sour. You've all reached into a bag of those new grapes that you've gotten at the grocery store to, to grab a grape and expecting to find the one that's nice and crisp and cold and ready to be eaten and you get the one that is squishy and not quite doesn't quite look like a raisin yet it's somewhere in between raisin and grape and and it smells a little off and and you you, you realize this is not what i desired your reaction is probably the same as mine what do you do with it? you take it and you find the nearest trash can or a garbage disposal and you throw it away You don't want anything to do with it. Your desire for the thing goes with the thing, down the drain, into the trash can. Or rather, your lost desire is displayed in the way that you act towards that funky, gross grape. God came to Israel expecting them to come to him. And what does he find? His people, the work of his hands, his vineyard, worshipping, but not in the temple on high places. The inhabitants of Jerusalem, they're creating other centers of worship. There are golden calves in the land of Israel. Multiplication of altars. These things ought not to be. A desire for the gods of the people of the land, wanting to figure out how they worship and order their worship according to that and not according to God's word. They reject Moses, and then they reject the prophets, and ultimately they kill the son. No matter what he does, or how he does it they will not respond and and we see it displayed here in our text don't we look at verse 3 God calls his people by the mouth of his prophet Isaiah and he says and now listen to him call them O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah judge judge between me and my vineyard See, up to this point, he has given them all the information that they need to do just that, to make a judgment. Don't they have everything they need to say what they think about this situation? He's told them about the labor of love and his expectations and the loss of such expectations. The vineyard, it's not yielded grapes as it should. The people of God have not responded, have they, in faithfulness to God's faithfulness. And he sets it plainly before them. And then he asks them, what do you think? What should be done? You who are made in my image and equipped to make such judgments as my people. He calls on them to make a judgment. He expects a sober word. And what do we find? You can look there in your text. Nothing. They don't say anything. A sour silence where he expects fruitful speech. They whom he is equipped for judgment don't judge. Why? Well, because they realize the judgment is theirs. It falls on their head. They are the vineyard with the wild grapes. They, they refuse, though, to acknowledge it. When pressed to see it, they won't. Even now, they refuse to agree with him. Remember, the prophet Amos, uh, prophet Amos says, how can two walk together except they be in agreement? And if there's no meeting of the minds, If there is no union of thought, where can love's expectation of communion be? If they can't agree with God, as He's explained where He is, where can they begin to agree with Him and begin to have communion with Him? It is lost. Love's expectation is lost. Even in this final plea to them, communion is something that is not. Like the Pharisees who refused to answer Jesus because to do so would be an omission of him being right and they being wrong. So here are the people of Isaiah's day. And I think, if we're honest with ourselves, we're not very different, are we? When we are confronted with the things that we've done wrong, I don't think any of us are really swift to confess our sins and to acknowledge that we are the ones that are, have done wrong. We're not willing to give in Just think of the way that you sit under the ministry of God's Word in this place. How often have you been confronted with your sin seated in these seats and immediately said, oh yes, that's right. Or have you instead gone out and wrestled for a week, two weeks, three weeks? Maybe some of you are still wrestling, not responding to His Word. Year after year, in repentance and faith and love, He's calling it forth, but yet the heart is cold and and not responding to His warmth. All of love's labor can bring nothing but hardness of heart, cold and sour silence. Do you, you, I hope none of you do, but maybe there's some of you who sit or stand when we sing and you don't sing. You don't join your voices to the communion of the saints lifting their voice to heaven and singing the praises of God. And the Lord would call you through the ministry of Isaiah and say, Repent. Turn to Him. He's turned towards you with love and compassion and grace. He's given you all that you need to turn and be filled with the Spirit and open your mouth and sing and join Him in the confession of His righteousness and your fall so that you might be restored. What else can love do? Verse 4, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And then verse 5, okay, now I'll tell you what I will do. I will do this to my vineyard, which brings us to our final point, love's vengeance. And I use the word vengeance not in its vituperative sense, that is not as something bitter or harsh, but as something retributive, that is the reclaiming of the right. Love acts to set right what is wrong. Seeks to put in order what has been disordered. Seeks to straighten what has been made crooked. Love acts to do that. And that, I think, is precisely what is set before us in his vengeful actions in verse 5 and 6. Love again reveals itself. Notice, as love revealed himself in actions building the vineyard, now he reveals himself in actions that judge and destroy a vineyard run wild. My wife, she tells a story, or her family tells a story of of her mother Uh, when she was a young 20-something. She got involved with the wrong crowd and ended up getting in a relationship with a boyfriend and was living with him somewhere outside of the family home. And the, the family tells a story of Jamie's grandfather going over to the house one morning and opening that door and walking into wherever she was sitting down and taking her, and forcefully taking her out of the house and bringing her back home, saying, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And he literally, according to the story again, put her on his shoulders and did it and took her home. Love, love will act to set things right. Love will have its vengeance. And the beloved tells us what he will do. You can imagine her grandfather sitting in his armchair at home and deciding... I know what I'm going to do, and getting up and doing it. Here the Beloved does something similar. In fact, the Hebrew seems to indicate that in some way he wants to define himself by the actions. I will make myself known. It's the, ang- it's the language of revelation. He wants to reveal himself to his people in this way, as one who does these things. I, the Beloved, will make myself known as one who, verse 5, removes the hedge and breaks down its vineyard, down the vineyard's wall. No more barricade to keep the invader out. No more fence. Gone is the separation from outside, and you shall know me as the Lord who does that, breaking down the barrier. Animals, therefore, will will wander in, won't they, into that broken barrier to devour, it says, and trample what was otherwise a well-kept vineyard. Instead of a vineyard, it will become, verse 6, a waste, a place that shall not be pruned or hoed, where the briars and the thorns shall grow up. You see, what was a yard, well-kept, well-maintained, is now a wild and a waste. God, the beloved, the Lord of hosts, will make himself known as one who turns the yard into the wild waste. As he once made himself known to the Egyptians in the judgment upon the Egyptians, so now he's doing it to his people. Matthew Henry, reflecting on these verses, writes, The church of the Jews shall be unchurched. They shall know the Lord as one who judges them and saves another people in the process. As the Egyptians knew the Lord as one who saved the Israelites out of their midst, so Israel now will be as Egypt and another people a strange people will be brought out, and he he who commands the rain will direct it the rain. The rain that was always theirs, that was promised, the, the the former and the latter rains, not towards them, but towards someone other than Israel. The end of verse six. I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And he tells us why. Listen to it. It's the language of love in verse seven. Because he says the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of his, Israel. And the men of Judah are His pleasant planting. His. He does it because of that. They are His. And He looks for judgment. But behold, bloodshed. And for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. There's a play on words in the Hebrew that you can't quite capture in the English here. The, the word for bloodshed sounds like the word for judgment. And the word for outcry sounds like the word for righteousness. And so, by using this play on words, Isaiah tells us in this clever way that Israel may have an outward show. Her works may sound like the things that God is looking for. They're, they worship with their mouths, but their, their heart, their inward being is far from him. The vineyard It looks like it should be good, like that fig tree that Jesus encounters expecting fruit, and there's nothing there, so it is cursed. The vineyard that was prepared, which he labored over to bear the fruit of communion, has fallen short of that call to communion. They have forsaken the God whose throne is founded on righteousness and judgment or justice, as the ESV has it there. And so their walls are broken down. Israel's walls fall, their protection is removed, and then wave upon wave the nations come, Assyria first, and then the Babylonian, and later the Persian, and Greek, and Romans. They all break through, they enter, and they devour, and they trample, and with each wave of invaders, more and more of that that carefully cultivated vineyard is lost to the eye. You cannot discern it anymore, it is erased until there is left but one shoot, the remnant of the vine. Isaiah 53, 2. He grew up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. In the midst of the briars and thorns, this little shoot grows up. In the deserts of Israel, it rises in wisdom and stature, and the Roman lion seizes it to devour it. Jesus of Nazareth, crucified, under Pontius Pilate. And bloodshed at that moment is turned into justice. An outcry at that moment meets righteousness. This is his judgment. In the end, he's chosen him. For the beloved has his vengeance. And again, with that in our ears, there is a call. The question To Israel and now to every man, both Jew and Gentile are called to judge. Judge, judge between me and my creation. What more can I do than I have done, sending my son to bear the sins of the world and to turn all of the corruption and all of the foolishness of Israel and all the nations into a place where righteousness might dwell, where Jerusalem and Judah were silent. He calls you and I to speak, to confess that He is right. You are right. I am wrong and I deserve that death, but He has died in my place and now I receive such just judgment and I draw near, confessing my sins and trusting in Your mercy alone and finding in that place rest for my soul and communion, communion with God. And if we fail, if we, if you and I, See, the great salvation that God has wrought in Christ, and we, like Israel, remain silent, know that the rest of the chapter is woe. Woe, 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 woe. woe. Six of them coming to us. But there is yet the opportunity to lift up our voice and join in with him. The breach in the wall, you see, it is for you. A way in. For you who are not Jewish, you who are not born of a Jewish mother, who who are of the nations, you might come in. Whomsoever will may come and come and find love claiming its own, making right what is wrong, working vengeance, but in the midst of that vengeance bringing many to salvation. Whomsoever will may turn into Him and be engrafted into His stock and find that the work of God from beginning to end is worthy. Worthy. Worthy of our voices lifted up, singing with our beloved His song, even as Isaiah sings it here. A song not just of sorrow, but sorrow that ends in joy joy everlasting, full of glory, and eternal without end. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful to you for this song of Isaiah. We're thankful to you how it speaks to us of the unworthiness of each one of us as we come to you, and yet your full and overflowing grace towards the sinner. You have made a way where there was no way that we might draw near and know communion with you through your Son, Jesus Christ, and even a measure of your Spirit as our own. Thank you, O oh Lord, for such blessing. We pray, O oh, God, that you might stir us to walk in the faith that you have once delivered to your saints and to do so to your glory as we go from this place and enter into our week. Let your, your, your truth abide in us and, and flow out from our lips, giving thanks to your name. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.